1: This is
0: the Living History Podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and today uh, an episode that I think you will all really enjoy. I'm I'm joined by Dave Sabin who uh, was an integral part of the very famous Battle of Long Tan in Vietnam and he's graciously agreed to come on the program and, and tell his story and his recollections about that day and indeed his service in Vietnam, and uh, it's a real honour to have you on the show. Dave, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Hi, Matt. Pleasure to be here.
0: Now, let's start at the beginning. I, I don't want this just to be about Long Tan. I, I, I'm, you, you may have the feeling that, that uh, perhaps that you've been defined a little bit too much by Long Tan. Um, I, I'd be very interested in hearing your whole story. So how, how did you come to be in the Army in the first place?
2: Well, it um, um, depends on how long you've got. I, I was born in Fiji, and I came over to uh, Sydney to do my high school, boarding school. Um, I came over on my mother's passport and um, um, stayed on. And so, to all intents and purposes, I guess in those days I was an illegal Im- immigrant. <laughs> illegal immigrant. Um, However, I, uh, I stayed on after school and went to work. And uh, when national service came in, they wanted all twenty-year-olds to register. So I registered, and nobody asked for my passport. And so uh, I went through the process. Eventually, um, uh, the time came when everyone else that was called up for the first intake of national service went to the railway station and grabbed a train to Kapuka. Or, <laughs>
0: and what what year was this that you were called up? This
2: was sixty-five, mid-sixty-five. Mid first intake of the second national service scheme there had been one in the 50s um, and this was a, a, a national service scheme calling up selected dates birth dates of 20 year olds um, for two years of full-time military service
0: how did you feel when your number came up well
2: um, I was uh, I was keen to go um, I had been raised uh, uh, in a in a biblical type family and um, in the Bible um, the Old Testament the Kids there, 20-year-old and upward, were trained in war, trained in defense, I should say, um, specifically, in how to defend yourselves. And so my household was sort of – you know, that was just par for the course. You know? If I hadn't been called up, I probably would have joined the CMF at that state of the reserves and I would have um, done what I thought was the right thing to be prepared to defend yourself as an adult. Now at that same time in the early 60s, um, Sukarno over in Indonesia was rattling the sabre and, um, and Australia was pretty uncomfortable about that. And Australia was sitting there with, um, I think it had four infantry battalions and of course all the supporting arms. And uh, across the short waters in Indonesia they had probably uh, 200 <laughs> infantry battalions for all I know. Um, so Australia sort of scratched its head and said well, we better increase the size of the army. Um, and they couldn't do it by uh, because it was a it was a time of uh, full employment. So um, they decided that they would boost the army um, by a, a national service scheme. So when that came up, I thought, well, this is as good as uh, as going to CMF uh, achieves the same purpose, and it only takes two years, whereas CMF was you know, sort of six or six or eight years. And coupled with that, um, there was a scheme within the scheme that allowed uh, selected people to go and train as officers. Um, I think the qualifying at, uh, at that stage was um, initially that you had to pass your leaving certificate. You had, your, you had to have passed your leaving certificate. And then it was a matter of uh, showing them that you, you had some ability to lead. Um, so, uh, yeah, again, it was a good deal for me. I thought, well, you know, I'll achieve my aim of uh, being a trained person, uh, in view of the fact that Sukarno is over there talking about walking into Australia, which we wouldn't have been able to resist, um, and get it over and done with.
0: How unusual was your your attitude that this is a good thing, that I've been called up, I can serve my country, how unusual was that amongst other Nashos?
2: Probably unique, I would say, <laughs> um, although there were quite a few that were quite happy to go um, uh, particularly people from the country whose fathers and uncles and so on had been in uh, or their grandfathers in the First World War. Um, And there was a military um, ethos there that um, if the country calls, I'll I'll go. And so there was not not a a general um, uh, whinge by the diggers that were called up, by the people that were called up. Um, The whinges came from the sisters and the mothers, uh, basically, who set out how unfair it was that you know, this one goes and that one doesn't.
0: And obviously the war in sixty five. the war was already well underway in Vietnam. The Vietnam
2: War? Yeah. No, in fact, it hadn't. Uh, it, it, it had been uh, pretty hot between north and south, but the American ground forces only introduced into Vietnam in 65, the year before we went.
0: How did This idea that you should serve your country and Indonesia and, and all these very noble sentiments that you had. How did that translate to the likelihood that you would be sent to South Vietnam to fight there? Um, The
2: the, uh, expectation in the mid-60s when when, uh, the first intake was called up, um, Vietnam wasn't on the horizon. We knew that there was a war brewing over there, but it was an American thing, and uh, we would hold hands with them as we usually did on a very, very low level, very small scale. Perhaps we'd send a SAS... Uh, regiment over there, groups, um, a- airplanes, warships, perhaps, but not particularly ground forces. We weren't expecting that. We we were drafted into the um, army and we were trained in counter revolutionary warfare, anticipating that we would be in a Malaya emergency type of role, fighting either front lines or behind the lines uh, in Indonesia or maybe Borneo or again. Uh, what was then Malaysia. Um, That was the expectation, and that was what the training was for. The the training uh, throughout um, my era in the National Service was counter-revolutionary warfare, certainly not conventional warfare.
0: How was that experience of... The transition from civilian life to the life in the army well
2: like uh, like anyone would say um uh, very difficult um i had been to boarding school so i had a a, a level of um, discipline behind me um, self-discipline and, and learning how to um, accept orders from 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 basically your peers um so it wasn't a, a totally foreign, but it was certainly um, a new experience insofar as the professionalism. This, this was an organisation that was designed for that role, as distinct from, say, boarding school, which was not really designed to regiment a kid. It was designed to educate him. Um, so the regimentation didn't worry me at all, and it incidentally didn't seem to worry the country kids either. It, it, it did seem to upset a lot of the city boys who hadn't experienced that level of... Um, uh, restriction of their freedoms as it were um, but no um, uh, once, uh, once sort of two weeks into recruit camp and everyone's had the same haircut and everyone's been dentally checked and everyone's dressed in identical clothes and they've got an identical kit and they're living in identical conditions it was a great leveller and all the usual um, um, uh, can-do attitudes by the Australians uh, the, the larrikin types it all just came to the fore and took over
0: so you went to officer training school? You were selected for that?
2: Yes. Um, within um, within the first uh, two or three weeks of being at – I went to Kapuka. A lot of others went to Bacapanil. But uh, this, the same thing happened at both. Um, if you had your leaving certificate, you were invited to, uh, um, to try out for officer training. And so part of the recruit training, um, uh, while the other recruits were off learning left, right, left, right, left, right – the, the candidates were taken to a separate place and, and put through a series of tests to test um, natural leadership and, and other abilities And of the thousands that um, volunteered for you know, to be selected to, for, to go to officer training, ultimately about 120 were selected and flown to a place outside of um, Sydney called Skyville up near Richmond and there was a six week a six-month course, um, designed to take these raw recruits, um, basic training them, um, basically infantry training, and producing um, a young second lieutenant who would be capable of running a platoon in a counter-revolutionary war in a Southeast Asia environment. And so that, was, that clipped a lot of the um, Portsea or the Duntroon training off the agenda. So we were very, very restricted um, clientele. Um, we didn't, for instance, have any uh, significant education in, in the, the forms and procedures and the ranks. You know, we didn't know any anything. We I think we had one lesson on army ranks above full colonel. And so coming out and being an officer, yeah, we had no idea what the, the QMG would be. But it was a that was a title of of a, of a high-ranking officer somewhere, and we had no clue. We were just specifically infantry, counter-revolutionary warfare, Southeast Asia environment, and that all became very pertinent when it became obvious that we were going to serve in Vietnam because that was exactly what we anticipated there.
0: We've spoken on this podcast to Gary Mackay, who is someone that I believe you know, and, yes. and if you're listening to this, you should go back and, and listen to Gary's. Uh, podcast as well because very interesting but a lot of parallels there but I think the big distinction was that Gary was a few years behind you in terms of natural service and coming in and by that stage everything Gary says was we were just training to lead a platoon in Vietnam yes how did you find your training earlier in the war the very earliest stages of Australia's involvement in the war, did it set you up for what you needed to do when you got to Vietnam, or was it, there were a lot of on-the-job learning once you hit no, the ground?
2: No, it was total on-the-job learning. Um, all through training, um, that, that is the second half of 1965, the American uh, ground forces had just turned up, and uh, they had their first major battle, um, which was um, filmed as We Were Soldiers that film, the, the battle in the Ai Drang Valley. And that was a helicopter-based unit. So it, we didn't have exactly the le, uh, same lessons to learn. But we could see that the war was serious. This was, this was a limited conventional war. And big American units were being involved with big Viet Cong and, uh, and North Vietnamese regiment um, units. So um, the idea then still was that we were going to get our own little province uh, which they sort of put pin, painted to us as a backwater province, but, but we can have a conversation on that separately. Um, and we were still thinking, well, yes, we will still be hunting VC. We're, we're, we're an anti-guerrilla outfit we'll be lurking in the bush looking for VC and, and, uh, and if, if we found them, they'd run away and we'd have to run very fast to catch them and, or, or surround them or whatever. And all our tactics were involved like that, which is what we trained for, CRW, counter-revolutionary warfare. By the time Gary and company got there, the war had been going a long time and, of course, the Battle of Longtown had, had gone and been and gone. Um, and so they, they had a, an indication... That maybe it wouldn't all be sneaking around the jungle looking for people, but it wasn't all that many of them that had, uh, that put in a full uh, uh, their year of war like that, uh, because we had Coral Balmoral later and uh, uh, Bin Bar. Um We had a number of other um, uh, fights, including Gary's, which were basically conventional warfare.
0: You after officer training, you were assigned. To a unit, where, where did they put you?
2: Yes, 22 weeks of, uh, of, of officer training, graduate second lieutenant and um, and get posted to a unit. The top five graduates from uh, from the first course of Skyville, OTU, um, were posted to five battalion, five RAR, because they were already listed to go to replace one battalion. Um, but then uh, another five officers, graduates were sent to 6th Battalion with no expectation at that stage that, that, that was going. they were going to go to Vietnam. Um, so, yes, I, I was posted to 6th Battalion along with um, uh, four others, four other National Service people. Um, the way that the Army decided to expand with National Service is that they took an existing battalion and split it. In in my case, um, they took two battalion, two RAR, they split it into half of two and half of six, and then they built both two and six, into new battalions. Um, the, the, uh, that process went for the next several years until we ended up with nine battalions, which which fulfilled the function of national service. It expanded the army. It more than doubled it. it more, virtually trebled it.
0: It's interesting you say that because it's, it's famously, that was probably first famously put in place after Gallipoli, for example, with the expansion of the AIF when the same thing happened. And a lot of new volunteers came in and they took experienced men and inexperienced men, put them together and, and split battalions to do that, the same that thing. That was the
2: purpose, and, and you've got to remember that, of course, our senior officers at the time were junior officers back then. Exactly.
0: exactly. <laughs> wow. So you were in? Were you assigned to Delta Company from the start?
2: Yes, from the start. Uh, I marched in. Um, uh, myself and Gordon Sharp was, uh, was also a national serviceman. Um, we were posted to Delta Company. Um, a, B and C companies each had one OTU uh, officer. And that was in, uh, we marched in in January of 66. And it wasn't until um, um, March or April that we learned, uh, through a radio broadcast incidentally, that uh, that in fact Six was warned out to go to Vietnam because we had increased our commitment from one, one battalion to two battalions uh, to the task force and being given our own province. Uh, one battalion had been, the 3rd battalion of uh, 173rd um, airborne and they had been uh, working with american troops in out of binou province and they had been constrained to fight similar in similar manner to the americans which over the year of operations both sides agreed that this wasn't working uh, we we couldn't Mount the sort of operations and and accept the sort of casualties that the Americans took, uh, and we were much better um, uh, out VCing the VC, you know, lurking in the bush where they thought was home, where the Americans sort of didn't do that. They, if they if they went into the bush, they went in with a mechanized brigade, churned up the place, expended a lot of rounds, and came out the other end and went back to base. Uh, which we we didn't do. We um, went into the bush and, and lived in the bush like they did, which surprised them and disconcerted them, no doubt.
0: How was it when you first joined the your platoon uh, as plato- as, a, as a as a Nasho? You know, wet but, behind the ears, <laughs> young officer coming in. How was that? Because ex- I assume there were some experienced very, regs very in the. Uh, yes, in the, the
2: sergeants and the corporals were generally regular, and we had a backbone of regular soldiers. So each platoon was around about 50%. The battalion was just a bit under 50% because a lot of the specialist platoons, the SIGs and the mortars and anti tanks and so on, were regular soldiers, higher proportion. But the infantry uh, platoons were about 50 50. The, uh, the diggers uh, seemed to uh, accept one of their peers, you know, someone in, their, in the same intake of national service. They seemed to accept that. They realised that, um, that we had done additional training and, and we were better than them in the bush at the same level of training. So they, they thought, well, there's something... You know, it, it's worth saluting these guys. We'll wait and see what happened. The, 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 the bigger officers in the army... It was very nervous for them and for the officer training unit itself because we 10 National Service officers, the 5-in-5 five five battalion, the 5-in-6, were the first to go into action. And so it was going to, it was going to be the decider as to whether it all, it all worked or not. So there was a degree of nervousness everywhere. Um, basically, uh, as you join the platoon, the, the, um, if you're smart – you acknowledge that the sergeant is, is really in charge of the platoon um, and you let him have his way and he hints to you what he wants done and you do it without actually him giving you orders. Um, and that worked very well because w- with me because I had one of the oldest men in the in the battalion. Um, my sergeant was a was – a, or he had medals dating back to the occupation of Japan. Wow. Um, some of my corporals – most of my corporals had had, had service in Malaya. Um, so, you know, there was a good solid background and they were they were prepared to put up with this guy wet behind the ears. But the wet behind the ears guy had to sort of know his place. Um, if he cut up a bit rough, they would put him in his place. And if, if you sort of accepted that, yes, he's going to salute you, but you you should beat him to the salute <laughs> if you're smart. Um, so, yeah, and, and the nervousness uh, um, probably lasted two or three months until you actually got your platoon, you got out in the field and you started giving them orders and they could see that what you were telling them to do was the right thing to do. Um, their corporals would – they would look to their corporals with experience and, and the corporals would wink or nod and, you know, this, this, this bloke's doing the right thing. If if there was an argument developed out in the bush between a corporal and an officer, the diggers would sit, sit, sit back and say, you know, <laughs> we've got a dud here. <laughs> we'll go with the corporal. Uh, but fortunately, um, uh, it, it it turned out in all the cases that I know of, it turned out very
0: well. Could you paint us a bit of a picture at this stage of the the key characters in uh, in six rar at this stage? Because obviously, when we move towards Long Tan, individuals played pivotal roles. So, could you just just some of the just for the people who don't perhaps understand the structure of how a, a, a unit well, worked in Vietnam? To, um, who the key um, Long Tan
2: were? Long Tan was um, um, basically a company action, so. Uh, One company, one rifle company is one-fourth of the strength of a whole battalion. So you have a battalion uh, structure that has four what they call rifle companies, A, B, C, D, and then it has a couple of other platoons, uh, companies um, based on administration and support and so on. Within each company, um, the company commander obviously is God. In Delta Company's case, it was Harry Smith. I talk to Harry Smith, talk about Harry Smith because – Um, he was a bit of an anomaly as well. He had been in the earlier intake, the 50s intake of national service, and he'd signed on and become an officer. And um, uh, in his uh, course, uh, in his career, just before being transferred to 6th Battalion, he had been in 2 Commando, uh, which is um, a CMF outfit training recruits up to commando standard. And so when he came to 6th Battalion, when he was transferred to 6th Battalion in uh, late 65, he came into infantry with commando in his head, and his his basic um, premise was, in my career I've taken guys off the street and I've trained them to commando standards, and now I'm in an infantry company with national servicemen off the street I can train them to command their standards. Why should I accept a reduced level of infantry infantry standard, infantry corps standard? So he came in with this idea that, um, that uh, we can be the best you can be. Now, don't settle for average. If you can do better, be better. And so every time the, the colonel produced something that said, you know, by the end of this week, you're going to have to be able to march five miles in, in X minutes... Harry would do that day one and then and then he'd say, well, now tomorrow's going to be six miles and tomorrow's going to be seven miles and tomorrow's going to be eight miles. And, and he just kept pushing the limits, um, knowing that, that there was Vietnam ahead of us and thinking, well, it's a CRW exercise. We're going to be lurking through the bush. We're going to be make big, doing big hikes. Um, yes, the Americans used to fly here and there and everywhere, but we don't have the choppers. So we're going to be footing it. Um, now this earned the irritation of everyone else in the battalion, but but we, because we knew no better, we accepted it. We Nashos anyway accepted it. You know this is the way the army is. So we joined up, um, and uh, Harry is putting us up, up to this extremely high standard of infantry, um, bordering on commando. And I'm not glorifying commando. I'm I'm using that as the as the uh, indication that commando tends to operate in much smaller units and it it trains down to um, groups of soldiers and in the the individual soldier whereas the infantry trains basically down to section level that's a section is 10 men three sections to put platoon three platoons to the company and and that's why uh, and then the sections are numbered one two three four five six seven eight nine sections Um, but the platoons. Uh, That's within each company. But the platoons are numbered um, from 1 to 12 in all four companies. That's why in Delta Company it was 10 platoon, 11 platoon, and 12 platoon. Okay. Um, So here we are training um, away. Um, The the corporals were on side. They knew what was coming. And the sergeants all knew what was coming. Um, Some of the diggers might have known, some of the regular soldiers. But the Nashos simply... This was a blank canvas. This is what we're going to do. This is what, how we're going to do it. Um, as I said, uh, Gordon Sharp came uh, to 11 platoon, and I was in 12 platoon. There was an officer called Jeff Kendall, who, from, who was from OCS um, Portsea. And so that made the three platoon commanders. Um, all three of the sergeants had been in Malaya. And as I said, my sergeant had been in Borneo and, and occupation of Japan as well. Um, I was a lot more experienced. Um, uh, the other two were uh, uh, Rankin and Buick. And they were respectively, um, Rankin was in 11 platoon and Buick was in 10 until we had got to Vietnam. And then shortly after we arrived in Vietnam, the company commander changed Rankin and Buick, swapped their platoons. So at, uh, at the battle time, it was um, uh, Kendall and Rankin in 10 platoon. Um, Sharp and Buick in eleven platoon, and myself and a bloke called Paddy Todd um, in twelve platoon. Um, the outstanding um, uh, individuals uh, uh, in the company, were the, the, the characters, if you like, were scattered. Uh, no one knew what their potential was, so no one sort of took much notice. Um, but th- but there was there was characters there. There were people efficient. There was um, slackers. Um, there were people um, uh, people that uh, that you would go out of your way to be friends with uh, and and people that you would go out of your way to avoid um, the only other person there of, of, of major note in this context is uh, Jack Kirby, the warrant officer. he also had served in Malaya war malaya ribbons at, at, I must say at those ranks most of the battalion had um, Kirby was uh, a, a large sort of bloke, you know, not, not, not running to fat but, but you know, muscle, um, very jolly and jovial and easy to get on with but firm disciplinarian and he, uh, he backed Harry 100%. Um, he struggled sometimes to m- meet Harry's physical standards, demands, um, but we, we saw him through and you know, he, 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 he managed it and uh, he became a, a, an outstanding character. Uh, in, there, in the in uh, the in the company um, for the, for for while he was with us,
0: what was your relationship like with the other platoon commanders? In
2: well, in training uh, you don't get to see them very much. Um, I'm prone to say that uh, the second lieutenant is probably the loneliest um, posting in in the army because there's only one officer per platoon, and most of the uh, most of the training was at platoon level. So we were all off different places doing different things. Um, When we did get together, um, it was like, you know, how are you going, how how are you finding it, comparing notes. Um, But again, uh, even within the training sphere, the companies were all separate. We're all different places doing different things. So there wasn't any opportunity to get together um, as like all five officers, uh, OTU graduates, um, we, we never got together, uh, not until we got into Vietnam. Um, the, the relationship with the other officers, um, again, taking the nervousness into account, they, they didn't know what to expect, and we were new to the, to the game anyway, so we didn't know what to expect. And there was a degree of, um, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's experience this and we'll make up our minds later. Uh, a lot of, um, um, we don't know where we stand, but we're comfortable that we're standing and
0: with the training that Harry was putting Delta through, yes. did Delta come out of that feeling like, okay, we're we're pretty special, we're ready to go? Was, was there a feeling within the company that this absolutely.
2: was absolutely good? Yes, um, uh, uh, along the line um, uh, of of upping the general standard required, I'll, I'll give you some examples. Um, uh, we looked at um, at film footage from one battalion when they were operating in Vietnam with the Americans. And we saw them out in the field in, in, a, in, a, in an operational environment, and they were wearing um, uh, shirts unbuttoned and dog tags showing and sleeves rolled up and bandoliers of, of ammunition, all the typical image that you see from the Vietnam War. And Harry called the CSM, the Kirby, and, and the sergeants and the officers in and had a meeting and said, Look at this. What do you reckon about this? And we all sort of looked at it and said, well, you know, we're not taking best advantage of the field craft, you know, that there's things wrong here. And he said, dead right. This is what we're going to do. You don't go out in – you know, if, if you're not in a the classroom, then you've got um, shirts buttoned up, dog tags taped up with, a, with electrical um, masking tape, um, sleeves rolled down. When you're patrolling, um, you're, both hands are on the weapon – we don't allow slings on the weapons in the bush. Um, if your weapon is pointing in one direction and your eyes are pointing in another, then you're doing it wrong. So your eyes follow the weapon muzzle. Um, a number of things like this. And we developed that into training um, uh, strictly, really strictly. And, and people got charged for, 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 for not complying until, until it was um, part of the, part of the uh, ethos at the same time uh, uh, we realized or De- um, harry realized that that we were not deliberately but but despite ourselves uh, setting ourselves apart uh, the other companies were not doing this and and so we were we were not only observing w- good practice in field craft, but we were becoming fitter by doing more you know, longer marches shorter times that sort of stuff um so he then said well if we're going to be uh, uh, different, we might as well be different. And so he, he got uh, camouflage bush hats for us, and we went out and bought them. And he put a camouflage bush hat on everyone. And and again, that rippled through the battalion, you know, <laughs> what are these jerks doing? Um, but it was uh, creating our own image. And uh, in the process, then we uh, – because we were walking and marching so hard um, – We adopted uh, Nancy Sinatra's um, These Boots Made for Walking. That became our our company song. Um, We adopted the boots into our company logo. And anyone that knows Delta Company will see uh, the red, red being the company color, the the triangle being the Greek capital D for Delta, and a pair of golden boots in the logo. Um, So that sort of thing... um, uh, um, highlighted us. Um, we, we weren't any shrinking violets. We were up, up front, out, out front. This is us, you know, like us or lump us, and a lot of them lumped us, you know. <laughs> um, as the tall poppy syndrome in Australian folklore goes, you know, mm-hmm. um, we were derided and, and laughed at and so on. But all of these things actually had their fulfillment in the battle. And it's arguable. It, um, I would care to argue that, that that sort of background and training came into into effect uh, in the battle, because in the battle we didn't um, operate as a company. We operated as three individual platoons, and within the, for, for for most of the battle, anyway. And for for um, the three individual platoons, in 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 two cases, it was really the sections were operating independently uh, um, uh, while we were conducting the battle. So really, um, for the first uh, two and a half hours of the battle, um, 11 platoon had three sections um, operating almost independently within the one perimeter. 10 platoon went out and came in as as a platoon. Um, 12 platoon, uh, we, were, uh, we were told to leave one of our sections behind – uh, when we went out to get eleven, so two sections went out, and the two sections working as as cohesive sections were able to work together and cooperate together and not do the same thing um, so that sort of level down to individuals um, came into play. what we found in uh, in throughout the battle when uh, a corporal was knocked over someone would Take the place when a sergeant was knocked over. Someone, a corporal, would step up and take the place. Every every digger knew what every other digger did, and was familiar with their weapon. A rifleman could operate the machine gun. Um, the um, The ability for soldiers to act in individuals or in pairs was a bit more uh, trained into us than the average infantry. Um, company or platoon and and that had a a, a really significant effect in the battle and I'm not just picking long tan in any other conventional battle um, Coral Balmoral and uh, and Bin Bar and so on Um, and I'm I'm sure Gary would say the same thing that his at at certain stages he would have required um, his individuals to have initiative so good on him if he trained that into him but a lot of companies didn't. Unfortunately, and when when one soldier went down, there'd be a period of time when there was milling around and not knowing, you know, know, if the corporal's down, who's going to who's going to run the platoon? Um, The 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 command structure was uh, was built into us.
0: So you. Finished training and sent to Vietnam. How, yes. how, how was that transition to Vietnam? How did that take place? Um,
2: we, we were advised that 6th Battalion was warned for Vietnam uh, sometime around about Easter time, I guess. And so we had a, a number of months to to, to finalise our training. Now, up to that stage, we had been concentrating on the individual, bringing him up to infantry core standards and um, getting the sections established so that corporals then knew how the sections were going. It wasn't for a couple of months that actually the the platoons operated as platoons. But then as soon as they uh, warned us to Vietnam, then it became um, company and battalion operations and exercises and training. So um, uh, the the period between um, Easter and and May was devoted to uh, but uh, company by company training and culminated in a battalion exercise up at uh, Tin Can Bay. So it was all very hectic, very uh, very little leave time, no no home time, um, or limited home time. And uh, finally, the, the time came to go to Vietnam. You know, we were flown out um, apart from the advance party. Um, we were flown out a company at a time, uh, you know, day by day, um, from Amberley to um, to Vung Tau. Uh, And assembled in the in the beach area at Vung Tau in early June. Now the battalion had only been raised on the sixth of June sixty-five, and within a year it was celebrating its first birthday on the sixth of June sixty-six. That's 6th battalion. Um, But as we uh, um, uh, arrived there, we got um, into uh, um, a series of of training. Uh, well, we had to acclimatise, of course. That was that was theoretically supposed to be about two weeks to acclimatise, which which you needed really, and learn all the American uh, call signs and and radio procedures and so on, how to call in American artillery, um, how to talk to American choppers. Simple stuff. You know, we, we we call a landing zone an LZ. They call a landing zone an LZ. And if you'd talked to uh, an American chopper pilot about uh, the LZ, he would have not known what you're talking about. (laughs) So, you know, we had a lot of that sort of stuff uh, to learn. Um, Five Battalion had been there about a month when we turned up, and they had started off the the task force base at Nui Dat. Um, That came under threat uh, in mid-June, just as we were arriving we were sort of getting through our acclimatization and and um rain shoots and so on um and we so we were called we sixth battalion was called up to Nui Dat early because of the threat of um, of, a, of a base uh, in uh, assault so uh, yeah mid-June we were there and from that we we then had to establish the base uh at Nui Dat which was just a bare rubber plantation when we got there so we Apart from the security, we had to patrol um, out and clear the the nearby uh, environment. But at the same time, we had to wire as we could get stores, um, dig uh, pits, um, make make, uh, a home as we could. And of course, it was just coming into the wet season, so drainage was a very major thing. And everything had to be done by hand. Uh, so it was just a, a, an absolutely hectic time, You're talking about literally 24 by 7 uh, uh, for, for weeks on end.
0: What were your impressions of Nui Dat and this base that they'd set you up in in the middle of Fukui province?
2: There was no reason to uh, to, to complain about uh, where they'd picked because for the purpose, it was, it was, it was adequate to the purpose. Um, keep in mind the strategy that we adopted, which was... Um, Uh, First of all, we are there to separate the civilian population from the enemy population. The enemy infested the bush, the civilians infested the towns and villages, therefore our strategic task was to build a notional brick wall around the the civilization areas, the the, the towns and villages, which were concentrated in the south and the uh, southwest corner, and we were going to occupy the area between them and the Far Bush, which was NVA VC territory, uh, other than a few settlements which we had to account for. Um, so from that point of view, Nui Dat was the right place. You know, it, it had some flat land, it had some high ground, it had some water. You know, it was what, Basically there were only two places that they could have chosen for the purpose, and one was the, the rubber plantation at uh, Nui Dat, and the other was the rubber plantation at Long Tan. There were, only, there were only two logical places, and it had to be serviced by a reasonable road. Um, the fact that we were uh, coming in and setting up a base uh, didn't disconcert us, again, because we knew no different. But the Americans were flabbergasted that, that, that we were going to come in and, and we were going to actually set up a base in the middle of the, the province and operate out of there, because what they would have done is that they would have because they've got the um, the infrastructure to do it, they would have sat at Wung Tao on the airbase and built a camp there, and then whenever they wanted to do an operation, they would have airlifted over to where they wanted to do it, and they would do it, and then they'd come home. And when they came home, they would be um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a typical American base. Um, we we said, no, that's not good enough. We're going to um, leave our logistics people at Wung Tao all our service um, workshops and queue stores and so on and we're going to take a limited number forward and establish the base there which meant that it had to be self defended which means that we'd need a lot of wire and a lot of preparation time and a lot of ground hose and you know, front end loaders and so on and we got the bush and we got the rubber but we didn't get the and loaders and, um, on the backhoes and so on um, and the basis, again, was, um, well, we can't have mechanical equipment up there until you can secure the base. And we'd say to them, well, we can't secure the base without having the back-end loaders. That and sounds it,
0: very uh, un, un-army-like. That sounds like a typical standoff.
2: Um, look, the, 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 the early years of the of, or the early months of the task force base were exactly one, – one could look at it and say, what a schmozzle. They didn't have enough stores. They didn't have enough wire for us. They didn't have enough machine guns. We couldn't we couldn't dig and patrol at the same time. So we had to reduce our patrolling, uh, which meant our security, so that we could have diggers at base actually digging the the, the rifle pits that we needed to defend ourselves. Um, we didn't have spare machine guns that we could we could go on patrol with some machine guns and still have machine guns defending the base. Um, up to Long Tan, the the base wasn 't even fully wired uh, it was it was um, probably eighty um, percent wired, and that wire was only um, like a two strand cattle fence uh, a three strand cattle fence um, a couple of feet apart with some co- uh, coiled wire concertina wire in between it that was all that was the total depth of wire uh, surrounding the base until long tan gave them a hell of a scare and then suddenly they they realised that we needed some, some more wire stores and so on, and, and stores started coming through. Um, the, uh, the, the fact that we had established a base far too big for the troops that we had, only two battalions and the, and the base was, um, I don't know, maybe uh, five, uh, five square kilometres, uh, a huge base to be defended there. Um, the artillery positions needed infantry protection, and the APCs also needed infantry protection. There was a big gap in the wire underneath the Nui Dat Hill itself. Um, it was, it, let me put it this way, it was a very amateurish deployment conducted by the government not having enough money to, 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 to supply us and the army not having enough troops to to cover the area that they wanted to defend um, by the end of uh, the first couple of months, and remember that five battalion had been there a month before us, um, uh, people were just exhausted. People were falling asleep at the pits, and we couldn't charge them because uh, it was happening so much. There was just sheer exhaustion, and people were coming down sick and so on. And it became it became uh, required that, that they had to sort of suspend operations a little bit and, and take p- people back to... Tower for a bit of you know, two or three days of relaxation or rest and you know, R and C they call it, um, uh, and and that again played into the, the timings of the Long Tan battle, because um, Long Tan happened in August. The, the, the task force base started to be set up in May and and uh, was was replenished in June or, or uh, reinforced in June. And that already had a um, that already planned to have a go at it, which is why 6th Battalion was brought up early, and so it's it's fairly obvious when you look at all the signs that they were they were going to have to take us out. The NVA had to take out this this new base before it could get really established, and so August was uh, was the 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 chosen time, which is why that explains the the timing of the battle.
0: How much active patrolling did you do between your arrival in June and then obviously the, the Battle of Long Tarn, which we'll get to shortly. How much patrolling Daily. were you doing? Daily. Okay.
2: Um, the, as I said, the the, uh, the, the, the method of, of operations was by companies and by platoons so that all the companies were given different tasks and within the companies the platoons had different tasks. So, for instance, a, a typical um, patrol pattern for for a, a platoon in the early days was um, day one you'd go out and you'd patrol an area all day. Uh, that night you'd ambush, so you'd be awake all, all night, uh, no no sleeping on ambush. You would then come back by lunchtime, this day two, and you'd be put into the the pits um, uh, you know, de- de- developing the defences. So that's your, your second day gone. Um, overnight you'd defend... The base, which meant that you had uh, two hours sleep on, two hours sleep uh, w- awake off on, on sentry. So all the diggers would have had, um, say, three two-hour sleeps during that night, not having slept the night before. Uh, and then into day three, um, half the platoon would be on battalion uh, jobs, like, like setting up the queue stores and, and you know, digging the mortar pits and so on and half the platoon would be on company level things rather than the platoon forward defences like digging latrines and digging trenches and so on. And then that afternoon, um, a half platoon would go out again for half the day. And then you'd come back and you'd probably be defending somebody else's perimeter because at that same time, companies would be out on operations and leaving their perimeter vacant. So in three consecutive nights, you've been awake for one night and you've been three two-hour sleeps on the other two nights. Um, and that, that, was, that was by three days, three days, three days, three days, three days. That was rolling. Um, so, yes, you know, um, it was just absolute, totally exhausting. And, and remembering that we're coming into the wet season, the humidity is 100-and-something percent, um, uh, the heat is something that we, we, none of us was used to, and we're uh, under the nervous condition of uh, you know, expecting contact any time.
0: How much so, contact were you having in those initial patrols? Um,
2: not, not very much because the uh, enemy was also um, uh, not fighting us. They were content or they were intent on wrecking. They needed to find out what we were doing. So they were sending small patrols into base to find out what we were doing and if they saw us they'd run away because they were only recce patrols, they weren't fighting patrols. Um, we were out there doing fighting patrols, but, but typical counter-revolutionary warfare, which is what we trained for, um, we couldn't get them. We, we couldn't find them. Occasionally we, we surprised them and we had some contacts. Um, when we clearing the, uh, the, the village of uh, Long Phuc, um, uh, we had a couple of contacts because they didn't know that we were there. So they just walked in uh, owning the territory. That sort of stuff, um, but yeah, the, the the basically the level of uh, of contact was fairly minimal, and that's explained by the the fact that the, those that we contacted were not fighting patrols; they weren't out to fight us; they were out to find out what we were doing. Now that's not surprising because the same thing happened uh, in, uh, a, f- a couple of years later at Coral Balmoral. They flew into an area that the that the VC weren't expecting us, so therefore the early contacts for Coral Balmoral were all recce patrols, uh, um, uh, they would run away. They wouldn't stop and fight, generally, I mean. Um, so that's not, you know, that's in, in retrospect, you can see why, why they're doing it. Um, also, one of the uh, strategic uh, issues that we had was that they set up the base right on a north-south road, one of the province highways, and so and they didn't close it. So all the um, the uh, uh, bullet carts were still going between Binh Bar in the north and, and uh, Wa Long in the south. And of course, yes, we were checking their IDs, but uh, uh, ARVN IDs, the, the South Vietnamese Army ar- um, IDs were easy to come by. From your cousin or your brother who was there because <laughs> they were sharing the, the, the load. And... Um, but any you know, any number of people could have just sat on the top of the car the, the bullet carts and, and with the correct id cards and just watch what, what was happening as they trundled through the base and they could count all their artillery and all our apcs and where they were and where headquarters was and so on which all came out when they mortared us on the, on the morning of the 17th they knew exactly where to target and they they fired shells into the base on the morning of the 17th.
0: Well, that's uh, it's probably good timing to talk about Long Tarn, sure. the, the famous Battle of Long Tarn. Um, we said this before the interview that I think the, uh, we all of us can go and look up Wikipedia or read sure. a history book and find out about Long Tarn. I think the thing that is most fascinating for me and that our listeners will find most fascinating is your perspective being sure. there on the ground. Because yeah. it's a rare thing. This is an iconic battle in Australian yes. history. and there are not many veterans remaining from iconic battles. We, we can't speak to a digger who, who landed at Anzac Cove or, or someone who slogged through the mud at Passchendaele or even many blokes who fought on the ridges of Kokoda. Yes. Um, so I think mm-hmm. it would be fascinating. So that first chapter, the, 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 the battle opened with the, the shelling of the base. Yes. What, what were you up to at that time? And I assume that took you by surprise.
2: Well, yes, um, we, we were – in the background, you're always expecting that they'll lob in a mortar bomb or two. Um, from somewhere out the, out far. But um, on the morning of the 17th, they, uh, they actually put a, a bombardment in against us. They had uh, several mortar tubes and a couple of um, recoilless rifles, and they targeted what they could see from the road um, uh, as they traversed it. So they, they targeted um, the task force headquarters, the artillery, engineers, um, the APCs, the SAS lines which were at that stage in with task force headquarters not on the hill Um, so this was a a deliberate um, uh, event which we then had to decide well whether is this a precursor to attack uh, or is this inviting us out for a fight Um, I was uh, defending the the Delta Company perimeter at the time which was part of that three day rotation and uh, my task for that for that morning was um, when I heard the primaries go off and I heard the uh, explosions happen, I took um, um, compass bearings on both noises um, and reported that to headquarters. And then other places on the perimeter would have done the same thing and they would have triangulated the um, uh, the, the bearings to find where they were being fired from and then fire counter bombardment onto that bearing. And that was effective. That happened, and that was effective. But everyone stood, too, for the rest of the night, thinking that there might be an attack that morning. That's the, the, the early morning of the 17th. When no attack eventuated, um, then they diverted one of the companies to go and look for where the, task, where, where the base plate positions were, where they had mortared us from. And Bravo Company was given that job, and Bravo Company went out and, and did locate the places where they'd fired from, but a combination of two things. Um, uh, first of all, this is the first time it had happened, so everyone was a little bit um, mystical about what, what's going to happen. And the other thing is that I, I talked about the exhaustion of the troops. At this stage, half of Bravo Company was due to go down to Vungtau, um that, uh, that afternoon, but they delayed that until the next day. So Bravo Company went out and located on the 17th where they'd, where they'd been, but couldn't do anything about it. Half their their company had to come back. And so the uh, battalion commander then changed Delta Company's schedule to take over from Bravo Company on the 18th and follow up the tracks to see if we could find the people that had left the tracks, which which transpired. Then um, morning of the 18th, um, Delta Company went out, to link up with Bravo to find out what they'd found. We got all the grid references and so on on where they'd seen the tracks and take over. Uh, the, the idea, the orders that we had were follow up the tracks from the base plate positions. Um, and when we got there we, we and we, we transcribed them onto a map, we realised that all the, all the tracks leading from the base plate positions where the enemy had withdrawn after firing at us, they all... Skirted the rubber plantation and went up to the northwest, of the northeast. I'm sorry, up towards the second, above the second nuidat, that was the hill overlooking the long tan rubber plantation, um, and into reasonable thick bush, which was good ambush country, and we could see that. Um, so we had lunch with um, Bravo Company and, and sent them home. And instead of t- following the tracks, which were now thirty-six hours old, um, we we decided, well, no, we won't we won't fall for that one. What we'll do is we'll follow two other tracks that were left in the rubber in, in the rubber plantation. There were the bullet cart tracks going from where the base plate positions were to the east, and they were heavy heavily laden. So we. They were the, the, the rut marks in the in the rubber plantation mud were, were very deep, and not much foot track with foot traffic with it. So Harry uh, opted. Well, the enemy has gone a long time ago, and we're we're, we're tempting fate to follow them into heavy bush into middle bush. But we've got two bullet carts here which look like bearing the 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 weapons and so they're going to be slower and they're going to be less defended and they're away from the bush we're going to we're going to follow them into the rubber so he made the decision early afternoon okay the company is now going to follow that if if we if we get through the rubber plantation and and spend the night on the other side of the rubber plantation then we can head north and intercept the tracks that we found, so we we can cover both territory.
0: While all this was going on, Dave, what yeah. was the expectation that you would meet the enemy and, and fight with them in the coming days? Nil,
2: nil. Um, it's all part of the shoot and scoot arrangement. You know, these people will be long gone. They they're they're guerrillas. They, they they don't want to be contacted. They want to fight on their terms, which they did. They came in at night. They mortared us. They disappeared. Um, at at the very best, from our point of view, from a military point of view, the very best we would find. The groups that fired, not their weapons because they were on the carts, and that would be a protection group. So, if 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 twenty men were firing mortars, then they might have another twenty men as as a protection company. So we might we might come across thirty or forty men. And thinking in terms of uh, of of probably on the erring on the side of hope, a company is about a hundred hundred and ten men, hundred and twenty men. They can in a, in in our textbooks. They can handle a third of their number. Um, a company can take on a platoon. Um, a platoon can take on a section. If there's if there's six or seven or eight or nine men in in the enemy group, well, a platoon can handle it. Um, if there's a pl- uh, an enemy platoon, a company can handle it. If there's an enemy company, it'll take a battalion to handle. That's the sort of scale: one to three, one to four. Um, we were and the whole purpose of the company patrol was that we weren't anticipating more than a platoon out there, and that's it's if we were lucky enough to catch up with them. So our anticipation was um, this is an irritation. They're calling us out, so we're going to be aware, aware of ambush, um, but we're still only up against a, you know, maybe a company, the the protection element of the of the people that fired. Absolutely no anticipation of anything out of the ordinary there. We had our own our, our ordinary scale of equipment and our scale of ammunition. It's, it's worth mentioning also that um, when, when I talked about the lack of supply for the, for the diggers, we were only able mm-hmm. to be issued with three magazines for each SLR, that's the rifle, uh, three 20-round mags. That's all the Q store had. That's all we all could issue. So each digger had sixty rounds in magazines. Some of them carried another packet of bullets in their backpacks, so that you know if we have a little skirmish, we can replenish. Um, absolutely no concept that we were going to be light on ammunition, because you know if you're light on ammunition, it means you had a lot of targets, and we didn't expect that many targets.
0: So the so you're out on patrol. Yes. There's no expectation you're going to run into the, the huge fight that you did. That's right. What about those early stages of the, the contact? when? Because we famously read in the history books that, that Bob Buick um, fired a couple of shots at a patrol he saw crossing the road. Yeah, that's right. Where were you at that stage? What well, were you doing?
2: Um, as we moved off from where we had lunch, the, 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 the bullet cart tracks split. So we had two tracks heading east, and they're about two or 300 yards apart. So the company then was a 10 platoon to the north, left front, uh, 11 platoon south of of that, um, and they were right front, and then CHQ, company headquarters, and then 12 platoon protecting the rear. And we were in the rear because we had led out from the base to the lunch spot, so we were pretty tired. We had to hack through elephant grass um, for about two kilometers, Um, so we were buggered. So um, uh, that was the formation, and we were moving very carefully east. We were in a, in a widespread um, uh, formation and moving very slowly. Communicating by radio with each um, other? Between platoons, we only, one platoon had one radio. So uh, between the platoons to the company, yes, we were talking on the radio. Um, within the platoons, field signals, which we had excelled at, perfected. Um, how so,
0: much communication was going on? And forgive, nothing, forgive nothing. these questions as a novice person who hasn't served. Yeah. How much communication was going on at this
2: Very stage? Very little. When, when, before you move off, you're given an order. You know, this, this is the orders uh, that, that we're going so that the diggers know generally what's happening. And then the ground control is done by field signals. So we can we can slow down, we can speed up um, this way, Yeah. You know. Um, give directions and so on. Um, If we want to uh, to stop, hold, um, there's a a field signal for that. Stop, have a smoke or whatever. Um, There was a road crossing our front, which we would treat as an obstacle, as if it was a, a stream or something like that. Anything out of the ordinary in the land, we would treat as an obstacle and we'd do something special. When we came to the road, it was just built-in practice. The uh, the first man to see the road would indicate there's a road, uh, there's a crossing. Um, uh, that, w- that would feed back the platoon. The platoon would then deploy and, and handle it. The way to handle it in those days in in, in that circumstance was um, because we were widespread, each platoon had two sections up. The first section uh, to, to meet the road would have called, yes, we've got an obstacle. The platoon commander would have come forward and decided how he's going to handle it. So one of the sections would be sent across the road and secure the other side. Is everything okay? Nothing's happened? Okay. Send the other one across. Is everything okay? You know, pause. Um, platoon headquarters would then cross. And then the third one would cross. The third section, and then when you consolidated on the other side of the obstacle, then you'd form up again and you'd move off. It was just all practice, trained, no, no other than field signals needed. So they got to the road, and um, and Gordon Sharp's platoon, um, eleven platoon, he sent the first section across, and they secured it, no problem. There's no one on the road, no, no indication of any worries. He sent the second, section across, and the two of them. Were, were happy you know, There's there's no, no opposition so it was then platoon headquarters time to cross and, and because there's only four people in platoon headquarters that cross one or two at a time as it, as it happened um, Bob Buick came to the road he was going to now cross so he, he jumped oh, he, he climbed over the, uh, the there was an earth ridge on both sides of the road and a ditch and then the road itself so he, he crossed over the the, the the hump and into the ditch which was overgrown and did what the kindergartens teach you you know look right look left all right it's all okay but as he as he was doing that and hidden in the bushes in the ditch um, uh, a half a dozen enemy soldiers came up over a very slight crest about 150 200 yards away 100 maybe 100 yards away and they were just walking you know, they were they were just Ambling along, smoking, rifles over their shoulders, talking to other, chatting, you know, grouped. They obviously weren't expecting any, any troubles at all. Um, and this is fairly unusual. You know, you don't sort of expect that. But nevertheless, they're enemy soldiers and they've got rifles and they're coming in my direction. And if I, if I don't do something, I can't go back over the hill, they'll see me. I can't cross the road, they'll see me. And if they keep coming, they'll see me. So I'm going to shoot first. So that's what Bob did. Um, Bob uh, let off several shots of, uh, of arm light he was carrying arm light at the time he downed two of them um, we think that he killed one and, and wounded one um, the enemy's immediate action was to um, rec- retrieve the two soldiers and, um, and cross the ditch and fence and run to the east in the process leaving uh, an AK-47 behind that was dropped by one of the soldiers and um, now, the fact that he fired told the whole company that there's a contact. So the next, the next thing, um, you know, within, within a half a minute, um, Gordon Sharp was on the phone to Harry saying, we, we've con- contact um, uh, five or six enemy soldiers. One of them, at least one of them was uh, very badly hurt. No casualties outside. This is just a typical report. The other um,
0: platoons are listening to this as well. They they who? can hear this. Are the other platoons yes. hearing the, yes, the, the communication. Pl- the three
2: platoons can hear it, and anyone anyone at base who's tuned into our wavelength, our, our frequency can hear it as well. But but there was no reason for anyone to do that at that stage. So you know now we know there's been a contact on our right front. Um, Harry says, "Well, there's there's you know there's thirty of you and there's only five of them." That's a job that you can handle. So 11 platoon, Gordon, chase So basically 11 platoon is detached from company and and is chasing this little group. And uh, to compensate for that, 11 platoon finishes – 10 platoon to the north finishes crossing the road. CHQ and 12 platoon approach the road and get to there. And when we get there, we cross. So now we've basically got – company headquarters is always protected – Ten on one side, twelve on the other, and uh, eleven is is chasing the small group of enemy. The enemy made to
1: a lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. To get started, visit plushcare.com weight weightloss. That's plushcare.com weight weightloss.
2: Uh, to a, a small hut in the plantation and obviously stopped and, and, and medically attended their their people, uh, left some equipment behind, some uh, bandages and, and packs and so on, and lit out east again. So th- there's this um, this pause while after the first contact, which incidentally is worth noting, we fired first. We fired the first shots of the battle because that comes in uh, critical when we talk about whether it was an ambush or not. Um, so they go. They find the hut. They, they spend time clearing the hut very carefully you know, tactically um, um, approach it very carefully. Clear it. There's no one there. They still see tracks. It hasn't started raining yet. So they still see tracks including blood uh, heading east. So they report in saying, well, you know, here we are. We're at the, hut, the hut's marked on the map so we, we can see where he is. Um, and so uh, Harry says to Jeff, uh, to, to um, Gordon, um, chase him. You know, the, the, you, you, your task hasn't changed any. We, we've got five enemy out there and you've got 30 people. Go, go get him. And we're all thinking, well, this is, this is great because this is what we're training for. This is what we have trained for. A platoon of people chasing five enemy, at least one badly wounded, and they've dropped a weapon. So, you know, that's, that's training. That's ideal. Um, so it wasn't uh, more than five minutes after that that um, uh, we, we've crossed the road now and we're waiting to see what what eleven's uh, what done. And 11 is, is uh, almost running but, you know, walking very fast – uh, following these people, and they come to a, a very small um, a clearing in the rubber a, a, a place in the rubber plantation where there were no trees and As they approach that, the whole other side of the of the clearing lit up with with um, muzzle flashes. Uh, this is according to their accounts. And uh, shrieking through the trees, firing too high, which was fairly typical, um, bullets going through the trees. So they all went to ground, of course. They took a lot of casualties, well, they took some casualties um, in that initial firing, and they were fairly spread out. Um, but from that point on, Gordon had to stay in that place and, and reform his people into a defendable position. But essentially, they, they were there then for the next hour and, hour, hour and a half. That's where the the, the main battle, uh, uh, the main time of the battle was spent, with, with the enemy uh, pinning 11 down and not letting them withdraw. And that's the location where the, cro- the Long Tan Cross currently stands. Um, in due course, and we'll get to the detail, in due course, 11 came back to 12. We came back to CHQ, and the rest of the battle, the last, the last uh, 30 or 40 minutes of the battle, took place about three or four hundred yards away from that um, where, where the where we were defending ourselves until until dark fell.
0: Do you remember that moment Dave when oh, yeah. that big contact suddenly occurred, when what should have been a fairly yes. straightforward chasing occurred and
2: turned into a big, a, something much more major? A big wake up call, yes because um, uh, when they opened up on 11 and sent them to ground, uh, we had all the overshots um, coming over our heads um, so uh, the
0: noise must have been... The noise, well, even,
2: from, even from 300 yards away, yeah, because you're, you're when you're on patrol, everything is silent and you know, you're even awake up to a distant bird call. Everything is just silent and you, you, you're walking through the bush making as little noise as you can. And so even the single shot you know, carries for miles. You can't necessarily tell from where it came. You can say sort of, you know, somewhere to my front. But um, uh, just a jarring noise carries for miles. And to have a whole cacophony, of, you know, like, like a platoon or a company, all firing and firing towards you, because the, the sound of fire coming towards you was different from being on the rifle range, hearing it going away. Um, but yes, um, uh, we, we were getting overshoots through the canopy, and the, just the scale of uh, not so much the noise to us, obviously the noise to 11 was significant, but the scale of, um, of the contact was just out of any uh, imagination. No textbook, no training had catered for this. We were never going to be attacked by a, a, you know, a couple of people with a machine gun, much less a platoon with a machine gun, much less a company with the machine <laughs> guns. Um, no, this was totally out of, out, you know, out of the textbook. Uh, th- this is where... Um, um, uh, an American or a South Vietnamese company, for instance, would have basically said, no, this is, uh, this is not our game. And if they lost a platoon, well, that's, that's, that's too bad, but really, this is, we can't handle this. They would have said that straight away, whereas we said, not so much we can handle it, but we've got to get 11. We, we've got to fetch 11. And, and that, that uh, then controlled the next hour of the battle. Just fetching 11. Um, the, the flexibility built into the company training was such that, that it was automatic what we were going to do. that there was no well, let's have an O group and decide you know we advised or company advised battalion what had happened. Um, and once that news got around, everyone in task force base switched their radios to our frequency. They couldn't talk on it, but they could listen. So everyone in task force base knew minute by minute what was happening, because li- they were listening to the company broadcasts. Um, uh, Harry, to his credit, uh, did exactly the conventional warfare right thing. That is, we've got the enemy here. Yes, they've pinned us down at the moment, but that's only a minor detail you know we're, we're here we're operating we know we're ready to take reinforcements if you can get us reinforcements he called for reinforcements he called for uh, artillery support which is standard practice anyway as soon as a platoon came into contact it, it wanted artillery support um uh within minutes uh, we uh, he knew that we were going to be wanting more artillery um and so long as there was an airstrike going, we, yes, we'd like an airstrike, and uh, um, yeah, uh, how are the reinforcements going to get here? We can we can uh, chopper them to the nearby where we had lunch. That's a, that's about a thousand yards away now. They can chopper into there and get to us, but we don't have the choppers. Um, uh, if you put them on APCs, there's only one place in the river that they can cross, not in in the in the bush, only in the paddy field. Uh, all of these things are sort of just automatic, you know. That this is what Harry's talking to the battalion about. In the meantime, um, uh, company headquarters and 10 Platoon and 12 Platoon moved forward and consolidated. So we've now got a defended position, um, partly for our own security, but also expecting, because the enemy tactics were, if they've got someone pinned, they'll, they'll send out in flanking movements and we could we could be there um uh defending against the flanking movement but the next priority in harry's mind was well we, um this is bigger than 11 platoon can handle we've got to get 11 platoon out so that's why i said the next hour of the battle is basically fetch 11. now harry had two options he could uh, he could take the whole company and move north or move towards the, 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 the firing, or he could have a flank movement, uh, send a flank forward, fire across the front, give 11 space to move back. Now, while he was making that decision, 11 came back, oh, it started raining, that, that's when the rain started, um, 11 came back and said, uh, not only is there more than a company in front of us, but we can see another company moving to our north, getting ready to do a a flank attack on us now that's dangerous for 11 but in Harry's mind he's now saying well there's at least two companies and there's chances are there's going to be reserve forces so there's at least two companies there I can't handle this so I need more people so he's uh, he's rung up the battalion commander and said remember those half Bravo company that we've just had lunch with send them back um, that didn't happen, but but Harry asked for it, um, and also told him, "Well, that's a bit senseless now to take the whole company and move forward to eleven, because if there's two companies there, there's bound to be three, because there's three companies in battalion. Um, why would they operate in two companies? And so we're just setting ourselves up. Three companies there can take on one of my companies, so we'll be we stand the, the chance of being surrounded and and uh, and destroyed." So his next option was to try a flanking movement. So he took ten platoon and sent them left hook. Go east until you're, par- you're parallel with um, with eleven. Then fire across eleven's front, give them the ease of of coming back. And on the way, there's enemy between you and then you might have a firefight. But, but you know, go and do what you can. So ten went out and and did that. They 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 went forward. They, they hit the enemy that was forming up to Assault 11 from the north, got into a major firefight there, and then they also were being flanked. So there was obviously even more people. To, that's how our, our concept of the enemy forces grew, you know, from little to, to bigger to bigger to bigger. Um, so after about a half an hour, it was obvious that 10 wasn't going to be able to... Relieve the pressure on eleven, and they were taking casualties. So they said, "Well, we're not achieving anything here. We'll come back." Harry said, "Yeah, okay, come back." Uh, Called Dave over Uh, um, Saban. I need to keep one of your sections. That's a third of my strength. Uh, I need to keep them here to defend us. Um, And now I want you to do a right hook. Uh, You go to the right and and uh, and fire across the front or support them coming back and bring them back. Um, so Sabin goes out with two sections and we go down to That's the That's only hut. about 20 men. That's 20 men. There, there was exactly 20 men, me and 20, 20 diggers. Um, so I went down to the to where I, the hut was because I knew that eleven platoon had passed the hut. Um, we knew basically where it was, but as I said, just by listening to the firing, you couldn't pinpoint what direction. So I went down to the hut and moved forward towards eleven. And then at that time I was probably 150 yards behind where 11 was and we encountered um, forces that were in, uh, encompassing 11. They were coming around the sides um, and we saw them on, on two fronts so we knew where 11 was because they were coming around. And I had two sections with me so I set one section up against one group and one section up against another group. And when we fired on them, the enemy obviously went to ground and, and, and dispersed. And the enemy's perception then at that stage of the battle would have been they've got a group of a, a group of people uh, there engaged in a firefight. They've seen enemy to their north, a couple of hundred yards, um, who they're now chasing. and now there's another group. A couple of hundred yards behind them, so there's there's three unknown-sized groups of enemy. So the enemy is thinking, well, we're up against a big force, a, like a big. They didn't know whether it was a company, you know. Each one, um, so the uh, the enemy now basically had to a, a decision to make: Are we going to pursue this battle? Because they're already on the on the hurting side. We're, we're having artillery calling in, and, and they're being hit. Um, so, do we stop this and go away, or stop this and resume what we were going to do, or do we have to handle this? Their decision obviously was we've got to we've got to handle this. So they persisted. Just paint a picture for us, Dave, about what
0: it was like to be on the ground. So you've had that contact. Right. Now the artillery is coming in, which Artillery's must have coming in.
2: Yep, <clears throat>
0: which must have destroyed half of the world in front of you i mean what was that perception um, lying on the ground in the mud at long time in the rain yeah, when that was all happening
2: at at this point um, um i can't speak for the diggers really but for me uh, at this point training took over you, you don't think in terms of um, of uh, how am i being hurt and i'm going to get home and i wonder what my wife will do if i die and that sort of stuff you that that's not part of the equation what you're doing now is you've got a job to do and your, your training is such that you're going through a series of um, what they call an appreciation. Uh, you're going through a series of subjects which keep you up to what's happening. So you think... What's changed? Basically, you're, you're fighting something, and you're saying what What's changed? Has the enemy changed? Can I see more enemies? Is there less enemy are they in a different position? And uh, now I know what the enemy is. What are my own forces uh, have, have I had any more wounded? You know, what What's my current strength? All my weapons operating, and so on. Um, and then there's numbers. There's subjects that you don't have to worry about. Um, are the diggers fed? Are they Are they watered? You know, have they had a drink? Are they, are they rested, and so on? Uh, forget all those things. So it becomes enemy. Friendly forces, weather, terrain and you know, what's happening as the ground changed? We'll know we're sitting one, one spot, nothing's changed. Um, and and as a commander, you're cycling through this and you're, you're, you're totally busy because it's an endless loop. When you finish considering one thing, you, you move on to the to the next in the, in the line.
0: Are um, you actively fighting at this stage? Is Dave Sabin firing his no, weapon? No, Dave
2: Sabin isn't. Um, uh, my diggers are because they're firing at, uh, at small groups, twos and threes of, of the enemy probes coming around the side of 11. So they're, they're not fighting patrols either. They, they move around until they realize that they're being fired at from a different direction and then they either die or go to ground or run away. Uh, so we're not being stressed at this stage, but, but this is our first contact, I might, I might add, for the company our first significant contact in Vietnam. Having been trained for CRW, you know, we're going to ha- we're going to have difficulty finding these buggers, and when we do find them, they'll run away. And here we are trying to burrow into the ground, hiding from these buggers that are coming looking for us. So all the training is turned upside down, but the elementary field craft and so on takes over, and you realize um, you've, got to, you've got to act in accordance with whatever's happening. The experience of... Uh, of of being on the ground, um, under the heavy the, the rain is increasing in, in pressure, um, and these people are coming out to look for you. And you're in your mind, you're you're using all the um, the skills that you've got um, as second nature. So you realise that if they're looking for you, you're not going to get up and run away. You're going to burrow down. Fortunately, the rain is coming in very hard through the canopy, hitting the bare Mud and and raising a mist in that mud, so we're lying down in this mud mist, which is screening us. It's not it's not completely making us invisible, but but it's it's helping us. So while we're while we're being helped, we won't help ourselves if we get up and advance or retreat either way. So we're sort of here, you know. We, we can't get out of this. Um, the 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 digger, the the individual digger is generally aware of what he has to do, what his immediate job is, and he's not really worried. I mean, he might be worried, but he's not knowledgeable about the bigger scale. So the the diggers themselves knew that 10 platoon had gone out and failed and come back. They knew that 11 platoon was in deep trouble and they knew that they'd left one section behind so that there was only 20 of us out there and we've just got to do the best we can. We can't pull back and we can't advance. So our job now is to keep the door open, keep the corridor open, and so they just sort of settled down, and that was it. And then they had their arc. You know, you're responsible for this area. Um, conserve your ammunition. Um, just bear with it.
0: What about at the point of the battle where Gordon Sharp was killed? How did you how okay. did you find out about that? Yeah. What affected that? Um,
2: okay, we're uh, we're we're in that exactly in that position. It's a, it's a timely spot to talk about it, Um, the rain is coming in, the artillery is getting closer, um, Gordon is calling in artillery, um, and the enemy is following up 10 platoon having withdrawn, and I'm having my own contact, so now you've got a platoon dispersed over maybe um, uh, a square, let's say 300 yards by 300 yards square, with a platoon in each corner, with 10 platoon having in the process of pulling back and each one of us is having our own firefight this is this is where I mentioned that you know, uh, uh, a company um, a, a company uh, um, uh, that operates as a company that's one thing but a company that operates as three different platoons and in case in, in that different case uh, some different sections uh, that that's an, a different level of training. So that's where we are now, um in the middle of the battle. Um, uh, we've got three artillery batteries back at base, and by now we've got three artillery base batteries um, uh, allocated to our defence, one battery per platoon. so so Kendall in ten platoon is is directing one battery of artillery in on his front. eleven is directing artillery pulling pulling it closer into his front. And I'm directing artillery to the south because I can see big forces moving. Big forces, meaning uh, in the dozens or, or scores, moving around to flank us in the south. So I'm getting artillery there.
0: Had you trained with artillery?
2: Before? Well, we had we had trained insofar as the procedures go. Yes, um,
0: but not having rounds not, landing no. a couple hundred meters in front of you. No, this
2: was the first time, the first contact, the first artillery call. Um, and and our artillery our, our artillery calls were being directed through um, Maury Stanley the the New Zealand fo forward observer um, so no everything's working just by clockwork you know just according to the training except that we can't blow the whistle and, and call the ds over the directing staff and say this is unfair you know we, we're never trained to have a hundred of them out there looking for us um, but other than that no everything's everything's fine um, the artillery for for Ten is being called in but it's still a couple of hundred yards out, same with me but artillery is now landing uh, say a 100 yards from uh, 11 and Gordon puts his head up to direct artillery which you have to do, it's, it's, it's an occupational hazard, you can't, you can't direct artillery from underground um, and uh, Buick yells out to him you know, don't put your head up uh, and he puts his head up and he gets shot through the neck and it killed instantly Buick then takes over um, he comes up on the radio and says um, um, Sunray down. Sunray is the call sign for any commander. And uh, Buick saying Sunray down tells us that um, Gordon is, is now non, non-functional. We don't know whether he's wounded or dead, but, but he's down. He's out of the picture. Buick then takes over the, the role of the platoon commander, which is what I was talking about before everyone knew what, what everyone else's job was. You know, one level up. Um,
0: what was your? Can I just ask, Dave? What yep. was your? Was there any reaction on a personal level to hearing that another platoon commander was down?
2: No, no, because you're in the middle of this uh, this training loop that I'm telling you about. Um, this appreciation and and my own circumstance didn't change. I still had my task. There was no reason that I had to change my task because Gordon was down. Um, and on the, on the bigger scale. I realised then that that there's going to be a a, a, diff, a more difficult job, us retrieving eleven. So it's very impersonal and very um, practical, um, but no, I, I didn't sort of dwell on that then and saying, oh, you know, a good friend of mine has just been killed or, or badly wounded. Um, the the, uh, the the training instilled in you is, what does this mean to me? What what does this does this change my circumstance? Now, if I had one of my own men wounded, I would think um, not of – I wonder what his mother is going to say when she receives a telegram. My thought is I've just lost a gun. Uh, I've, I've got a, non, a, non, a non-working rifle now. I'm down to, uh, to, to 19 effective men. And you think, well, can I do my job with 19 effective? Yes, I can. I've got another one wounded. No, I'm, I'm, I'm now 18. This is the, the cycle that's going through your head.
0: And were you taking was, – was 12 platoon taking 12, casualties at 12 stage?
2: was taking casualties. Um, uh, um, uh, by the time I pulled back, I had taken, I think, five casualties. My sergeant was lying beside me. Incidentally, the enemy is using 61-millimeter mortars uh, sporadically. And my sergeant's lying next to me and fac- facing the other way, and uh, he was wounded. Um, uh, he got a, a, a mortar bomb between his ankles, which buried itself in the ground before it exploded, which saved him a, a, a great deal, saved him losing his legs, but it put shrapnel in both ankles. So, but, so my sergeant was one, one, one was one casualty. Um, the the uh, impersonal nature of of the exchange. Uh, existed until you got you got to a, a stage where you could say, okay, well, my my task is finished. Now I can think about something else. So all the time that uh, that I was out there waiting or trying to get eleven back, um, it, it was a matter of, well, you know, they don't have a platoon commander. But then when I got eleven back, um, where's Gordon's body? Well, we left it out there along with many others. Um, and and then it hits you. Then personally, you know, I know he's injured. His body's been left out there. Uh, we, we've lost him. You know, uh, whether he's alive or or dead now, he's not with us. And so then you th- you think, well, I'm, I'm now feeling a sense of loss. But um, I'll move on to my next task. And my next task was to get back to C H Q. Um, it wasn't until the next morning. Um, that really, I steeled myself. That I knew that I had to go back into the battlefield. We all did. We had to go back into the battlefield. I knew that I would have to locate Gordon's body and look at him and and you know and see, register the fact. Yes, I have seen um, Gordon's body, and and that was very tough. But then I, I, uh, it was, it was. Lightened, if you like, because I had to see many others, uh, and including my own people we we didn 't leave people out overnight, but I had to put them on helicopters uh, at, at midnight and you know, evacuate them. Uh, I only had one man killed, but I had by the time by the end of the battle, I had seven wounded, and each of those were, were evacuated, so I, I had to get sorry I had to write those ones off as you know <laughs> Um, they 're my soldiers, uh, and they 're taken care of, but I had to go back in uh, with with the rest of the company and i I just knew that I had to witness um, gordon 's body uh, and and that was when I you know all the things about um, well that could be me lying there and um, we're only two months into the battle into the uh, vietnam tour i 've got ten more months of this, there might be more long tans um, and that might be me and someone else looking at my body one day You know, those, those sort of things hit you then but not at the time, not in the battle
0: That's pretty confronting emotions for a Very. young man in his early 20s to deal well, with particularly it, considering it, 18 months earlier you'd yeah. just been a civilian.
2: Yes that's right yeah, exactly and, and it didn't stop there because um, uh, one of the things they don't train you to do is to go back to base and write a letter to the parents of your of your dead and wounded, and uh, so I had to write a letter from from no training at all and at twenty one years old, I had to write a very sensitive letter to the parents of the diggers of the digger that I had had killed um, and that 's a maturing experience as well it 's said in 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 jest that um, that the twenty one year old Nasho went over there at twenty one and came back forty two uh, years of age. Um, or to put another way, I think we were, we went over to the Rolling Stones and we came back with uh, with Viennese waltzes. <laughs> you know, we just matured out of sight uh, in that in that aspect. But it's not an, an aspect that uh, the average um, uh, Viet vet concentrates on. Partly because the average Viet vet didn't experience that. The overwhelming majority didn't. Um, the the few that did. Um, uh, Realised that they were the few and didn't um, didn't rattle on too much about it. The
0: latter stages of the battle were pulling back. The platoons coming back in and yes, consolidating, we, forming a perimeter.
2: Well, we eventually pulled uh, eleven back, um, uh, back to twelve, and the two of us went back to CHQ, which where ten was already there. So we formed a defensive perimeter. Then we had received. An ammo resupply by chopper at about um, a few minutes past six, maybe ten past six. Um, we got there about twenty past six. Um, it was going to be dark at seven, <clears throat> so when we got there, the enemy was already following up ten, and so they the enemy knew where we were then, and they were they were following up uh, eleven. Uh, although they didn't occupy the old 11 position. They followed up 11 and they followed up 12 and 11 as they came back. So now the, the enemy knew where we were, had had a reasonable idea of our size, knew, must have known that we were only a company because we were a very small perimeter. And there was a lull then. Uh, we took our our ammo our ammo resupply a few minutes earlier. So when we got in, we got an, an ammo resupply. It was loose rounds. It wasn't in magazines. So each digger had to then start un, unburden, unbuttoning all the pack packaging and so on and filling their ammunition. So we had a lull then, and then uh, about um, uh, maybe quarter to six, quarter to seven, I'm sorry, um, the, we we could hear the whistles and the bugles start to sound, and it was only a lull. We knew that we were we were still pulling artillery in from where it had been back now to defend the perimeter. And the next,
0: was there fear at that moment when you heard not, those whistles again? And not bugles?
2: fear. Um, uh, obviously, everyone was uh, was yeah. You, you could say fearful, but it wasn't a sort of a a, para, a paralytic fear. It was a fear that you. This is an unex, un, un, unexplained, you know, unaccepted. Uh, uh, danger! How's it going to work out? There's the fear of the unknown, as, as most fears are. Um, uh, this this isn't in the training manual, you yeah. yeah? There there was nothing in the training that suggested that the enemy would attack us in any form, even in a, in a even in a tiny contact. And yet we could hear them, and there's hundreds of the buggers out there. When we could hear them organizing, we could see them uh in in the when the, when the rain eased off we could see them lining up we could see the ncos jigging their their troops you know getting their troops all psyched up and then they started coming at us in waves and the, 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 this was a, a, this was not not heard of I mean even in the second world war there's not too many o- occasions where um you had human wave attacks um, the, the, the the nearest thing was the, the korean experience where Thousands of people, uh, Chinese would would storm up the hills uh, at at the defenders, um, and that was sort of folklore. That was storybook stuff. It was <laughs> Hansel and Gretel, never mind uh, yeah, Vietnam. Um, but we could hear them and we could see them. And when they came in, the the the, the assaults lasted for fifteen or twenty minutes. The last the last bit of the, of daylight, and they would come in. Uh, and we would we would be shooting at them, knowing that we had not very much ammo so that the shooting would be very uh, judicious. Um, but they would come in at different times on different fronts. so ten platoon if if you can imagine our position being a, a clock uh twelve platoon was defending from from twelve down to three so from from north to east. Um, eleven platoon then defended from three o'clock through six o'clock to maybe seven. Uh, chq had a section uh, which de- defended from seven to eight my nine section which had been left behind defended um, the, the back uh, the nine o'clock area and all of the people that would come back from 11 platoon were put up into the northwest corner because we hadn't seen any enemy coming in there and they were pretty much spent we gave them some ammunition and and said just keep the back door uh, safe and they you know, didn't hear from them then um, but what would happen is that uh, an assault would come in against 12 platoon from, say, uh, northeast, and we would fight them off and there'd be no firing anywhere else. And then when we fought them off, then a, uh, another assault would come in from the southeast against 10 platoon.
0: I assume at this stage you were pretty actively involved yourself in now, fighting and oh, shooting. Yeah, and yeah. yeah.
2: Towards the end of getting 11 platoon, I was starting to shoot. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, now our 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 perimeter depth is, is two or three rows of trees. So, yes, there's a front line in this tree and there's the corporal in this tree and then there's me behind that three, three, uh, three rubber trees away. Um, but uh, uh, even then, um, the artillery now is under um, Maury Stanley and he is directing the artillery as distinct from the three platoon commanders having done that. And he's got three different batteries and three c- protecting three different areas. And he's calling them the artillery in. And the artillery comes in 50 yards away. Now, the killing ran, range of a 105 shell is maybe 10 meters. Um, so, you know, 50 yards away, you can get a big bang and you can hit, feel the blast. Um, but then later, toward right at the end of the battle, um, he called in some of the batteries to 25 yards. And so we started – in fact, we had two people wounded by our own artillery and we started having um, much more than just blasts and and, and, and vapour coming in at us. We had enemy equipment coming in and bits of bodies and so on being flung in at us um, because the shells were landing that close. Um, was, there a, was there ever a stage in all this,
0: Dave, where you felt we're just gone, it's all out of control, you know? Um,
2: yes, but I'd have to say that was on an academic level. Um, it wasn't on an emotional level. One of my corporals, uh, Drinkwater, uh, said to me as we were coming back, you know, you think we're going to get out of this? And, and my training was, look at, look at the facts. You know, we've been here for now for two and a half hours, three hours, and they're still coming at us. We've asked for reinforcements, and the reinforcements haven't turned up. We've asked for an airstrike, and they can't airstrike, they can't. Provide airstrike because of the monsoon rain. Um, the the uh, the tanks, the, the APCs um, haven't haven't arrived, and you know, this is after three hours. Yeah, you know, so you know it's all against us. We're losing people, and we can't see what damage we're doing to them. But they they still keep coming. So I said to him, "Look, no, I don't think so." Uh, that didn't mean that we're going to give up. You know, that, that, oh, yeah, shit happens. Um, you know. Uh, what 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 am I what am I doing next? Well, you know, defend the perimeter. <laughs> um, so yes, it, it, it's it's difficult to describe. But academically, yes, it was all against us. There was no way that we we're going to get out of that. Uh, all the support that we were getting, uh, summed up, you know, all, all the things that that could have helped us, turned out to be the artillery was excellent, and and it came in and just kept coming, and the, we did we did get an ammo resupply. But they 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 told us that they couldn't give us another ammo, ammo resupply, um, so that was it. That was all all the support we had. We knew somewhere in the distance, the APCs would maybe turn up and, and they'd have another company aboard. But by the time they got here, it'd be too late. And that's the way it worked out. They arrived after dark, and the enemy stopped fighting at dark. So so the the uh, the despair was only academic. It was just look at the facts. Do the facts mount up? And well, no, they don't. Okay, well, now forget that and get on with the job.
0: Do you recall hitting enemy soldiers? Do you recall yes, shooting?
2: Yes. Yeah. That's the sort of um the sort of memory that on the one hand I knew that I had to cite Gordon, on the other hand um you, you sort of you know what you're doing, but you you will yourself to forget because you don't want to, you don't want to think that you're going to remember that for the rest of your life. So it, it, I suppose it's like someone having been in a car accident that, that remembers that there was a car accident but doesn't necessarily remember all the gory details. Um, there's a part of the memory that sort of blacks out and saves you from that. So yes, I, I was firing and uh, um, I probably expended uh, uh, two two mags or so. Um, because by that time, I only had two mags left because I was giving my when i wasn 't firing, I was giving my mags to the people in the front line who were firing um, but but that wasn 't my prime job. I was only doing that when I had nothing else to do um, and because I now wasn 't directing artillery, the, it, neither of the platoon commanders was or, or Buick for that matter were were involved with the artillery. We had nothing else to do. All we had to do was to back up our own troops, make sure that the wounded were taken back to casualty, and so on. In in the lull and the firing, um, uh, you, you you spent the time uh, loading mags. And in one case, I I ducked over to uh, to the company aid purse, which was only ten yards away. Uh, just just you know, are you okay? You know, are you are you are you being threatened? Um, uh, but otherwise, uh, there was nothing else for us to do. Um, we were we were now to, so close that we could talk to Harry. Harry was two um, two more tree tree lines away, so we didn't have to use the radio. We had nothing to do to talk to each other, nothing to talk to us, us about, and nothing to talk to Harry about because everyone knew what was happening. So yeah, we had nothing to do but uh, you know, wait for the bugles and, uh, and and fire and the inevitable artillery coming down. Um, then. Uh, Uh, knowing that if they didn't get in this time, then we had more rounds to put in the magazines for next time.
0: Was that the hardest part of the battle, that final action at the perimeter?
2: That was the the, the most intense part of the battle because it was... um, I've sort of... I've said that there's nothing much to do, but in fact it was frenetic activity. Um, As a platoon commander, I had to make sure that, that everyone did have rounds and that's one of the things that Kirby was doing. Kirby was delivering rounds to the diggers uh, through in between all the fighting and so i had to make sure that that digger didn't miss out you know and and if this digger had uh two round two two magazines um and that one had finished his well you know get the mag and put it over um at that stage that the the people in uh, the people behind the radio operators who now had nothing else to do were taking rounds out of um, mg belts Pulling, pulling the rounds out and using them, putting them into magazines and then throwing the magazines forward. Because by the time, in between um, uh, assaults, uh, a digger out the front might only put in five or ten rounds. Uh, you know, so that he knew then that he had ten rounds to expend in the next assault. So, you know, the fire control was never practised. You're never trained in fire, fire um, control. But it... it uh, it it's uh, sort of automatic you know, when, when the diggers know this is what I got and that's what's coming at me then I'd better be careful
0: uh, I saw an interview with Bob Buick about this phase of the battle and he said that it was time to fix bayonets except we didn't have bayonets was well, that the, was that how it felt
2: um, yes it was and and in fact those that did carry bayonets did um, Bob Bob's might uh, platoon might not have it was it was fairly optional particularly for people that carried armor lights which Bob did. And we didn't have Armalite bayonets,
0: as opposed to the um, uh, SLR.
2: The SLR, the, the seven point six two rounds. Yep. Yeah, the seven point six two. We had the bayonets for that, and uh, and those that did have the bayonets were tempted to put them on. Um, people that didn't have bayonets, uh, uh, if they had their packs with them, which not many of us did, uh, they had their machetes out. Um, it was it was getting that way. But we also everyone knew that also. Um, the enemy was up against the dark because had the enemy breached our our perimeter on dark then it wouldn't have been beneficial to them because it would have been black i mean i'm talking pitch black and they would have been fighting themselves because they couldn't see and so they they would have known that they've got to get into our perimeter before dark and secure their battleground before dark. If they couldn't do that before dark, then they had to break off the engagement, which is what happened.
0: It's often depicted, Dave, that the when the APCs arrived, yeah. quite literally the cavalry arriving yep. to save the day. Did it feel like that on the ground when you saw those lights coming through the trees?
2: We were hoping. We were wishing. And I believe that the recent film that they've made depicts that the APCs turned up. But what actually happened in, in history is that the APCs... Um, had crossed the river eventually and having been delayed by the by the battalion commander I might add um, they eventually crossed the river and got into the plantation and they had a contact about a a kilometer away about a thousand yards away so they didn't know where we were um, not 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 visually and we didn't know that they were there but they had a contact and uh, they they pushed through that contact fairly swiftly and I doubt whether that Enemy, the enemy group that they had, um, they had contacted, had radios. If they did have radios, then they would have radioed back to the main force saying the APCs are on their way, and and things may have that may have affected the the environment. I don't see why a company level, which they contacted, would have had radios. However, they then pushed on through that, and they had a second contact about 500 yards away, and again that group. Might have had radios or might not have, but anyone on the battlefield wouldn't have known or wouldn't have seen that before then, and that was right on that was at the best about five five, three, four, three minutes to seven. it was it was like getting close to last light, which is why we could see their their headlights and their traces. But they had a contact at, at about five hundred yards away, and the com- the battalion commander who was then aboard, stopped the APCs from coming to our location, which would have been the cavalry has arrived in charge just on, you know, just on dark with the headlights and the machine guns and so on. But the battalion commander diverted them to, to, to run eastwards. That was away from not, not away from us, but parallel with us. And they followed people that they were contacting and, and followed them into the dark. Um, when they could no longer see them. And so they they were now more than 500 yards away because they'd they'd followed them for a couple hundred yards. When it was so dark that they couldn't see the enemy that they were following, then they turned around and came to the company location. So they actually arrived about 10 past 7, and it was solid, solid dark. We stopped the artillery uh, about 2 minutes past 7 because there was no incoming. And we stopped the artillery uh, and and listened, you know, so, so it was silent where we were, and we listened. And at that stage, we could hear the contact that the APCs were having, 500 yards away, and we could see the traces and, and glimpses of light, which we took to be their driving lights or their parking lights, um, flickering through the trees, by the, past the rows of uh, of rubber plant, of the rubber plantation. Um, and then, when they stopped firing. And turned and came towards us. Then they could, we could see their, their their lights, and of course at that stage there was great relief because we, even though the battle was over, we didn't know that it was over. The, the, the referee hadn't blown the whistle, and so we thought, well, okay, if if they get here and we got they've got another company aboard, now you know we've got refreshed troops, APCs, 50 cal machine guns, we're okay, and that was a sense of relief that we had. Um, when they did arrive but it was pitch black you know it was, there's no um, no pictures of of diggers jumping up and, and saying hooray hooray it was just black um, it, it was a black that people don't experience unless they, they're in the bottom of a coal mine and the lights go out you know that it's it's black you can't see your hand in front of your face under the rubber plantation and un- under the rubber canopy So um, when the APCs turned up and and got themselves into position and and disgorged um, uh, a company and turned off their lights and there was no firing and their artillery wasn't firing and we weren't firing and the enemy wasn't firing, every now and then you'd hear a distant shot, single shot, and that was the enemy telling their people where to come back to. Uh, That was the only thing. And it wasn't until... I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 minutes past seven, that it was declared, then we, we'd accounted for everyone. We know we know that there was wounded people or dead, dead people, at 15, 15 or so of them at 11 platoon position, but otherwise we raised the artillery distance out and we, we started firing the artillery in depth to disrupt them. Uh, and, and at that stage there was a little sort of, you know, okay, it's over now, you know, the, the artillery is now firing in depth, give them curry we're safe.
0: You then spent the night on the battlefield and had to go in again the next day to clear and retrieve the wounded. Now, I saw I saw Harry Smith again in an interview. Yes. I, I, unfortunately, I haven't met Harry, but mm-hmm. I, I saw him interviewed about this and he said that there was no way Delta wasn't going to go back in and look for their wounded. But I've also seen some of the diggers interviewed about it and they felt they got the short end of the stick by having to go back the next day. <laughs> where do you stand? Okay, on well that's the old
2: falling off the horse theory. Um, yeah, um, we were ordered off the battlefield. We wanted to stay on the battlefield. Um, Townsend, the, the the battalion commander, ordered us off the battlefield, uh, so we went reluctantly back to where we had lunch, and uh, and we took our uh, dead and wounded with us. the, the non-eleven platoon ones and we choppered them out at about midnight. Um, so for the, for the diggers, who had who'd certainly had enough, so far as they were concerned, that somebody else, you know, let, let someone else do it. But the old soldier falling off the horse you know, came into, into the practice. Um, uh, Harry understood very well that first of all we had to secure 11 platoon, the, the, the people that we'd left out of the battlefield, and second of all, for all the damage that it had done to us. And remember that we had had one in three of our numbers casualties. And and that's easy to say, but if I said to you, uh, um, uh, on your way to work this morning, one in three of you are not going to make it to work, people wouldn't go to work, would they? And one in three is a pretty pretty horrible thing. Um, and he he needed to reassure them that the one in three actually did something yeah, it, it it was never going to be worth it but if it achieved something they had to see it and harry knew better than anyone else that that we had to go back into the battlefield um, and look at the damage that we'd caused uh and and retrieve our 11 so yes i was with harry we we, we had to go back um it, it wasn't a dangerous thing because Delta Five had been flown in that morning, and they had swept through, um, A Company, who had come out on the APCs, had gone forward, and Charlie Company has had also been sent out. So we had three companies had actually preceded us through the battlefield and secured the other side. So the the diggers did not wouldn't have necessarily known that they saw the APC the Delta Five come in, um, but they would have still thought, you know. There's enemy out there, and we're in danger. We've had enough, you know. Somebody else's turn. But the command element knew that it was relatively danger, danger-free, and in fact, that's the way it turned out to be. The other companies had had been through, secured um, the, the far edge, and so when we went back in, there was no live enemy that that was able to offer resistance. We we picked up three wounded enemy, but the 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 visual of what damage we had inflicted while they were busy inflicting damage on us, in my opinion, was well worth the the effort, because when we got back to where the battle ended, the the the, the final company position, there was hundreds of bodies, mangled in front of us, and they could see that they had accounted for themselves. You know, well, yes, they'd lost mates, but but. It hadn't been in vain. They had made a big impact. The enemy had cleared a lot of the battlefield, but around the company perimeter, um, yeah, it was just it was just a charnel house uh, visually, because it, it hadn't rained uh, after it stopped raining. That was it. Everything was clean. Everything was washed clean. There's the,
0: that famous photo taken of you at this stage of you yes. crouched next to the rubber tree with the with the with the armalite and the the dead. That's right. Bukon body just well, in front of you.
2: that's what we had to do. Uh, we had to go through. That was in, in the eleven platoon area. We had to go through and clear that, and then afterwards, um, uh, each platoon went back to where the platoon had fought and and retrieved bodies and and weapons and so on that that we had been responsible for. And the APCs went back to where they had had the contact and searched their area clean. Um, but that was the that was the the leading edge that when that photograph was taken that was when we had gone just beyond 11 platoons position and there was the machine gun there and so i i was in the front line and i crouched down and the photographer was immediately behind me and he took that photo which has sort of become iconic but that that's uh that was in the middle of the all the tension just off the off the if you if you get a wide angle of that photograph you'll see a machine gun Sitting up an Australian machine gunner, an M60, sitting just next to me. That was that was our front line, and, that, and then there was the enemy.
0: <clears throat> um, what about? I mean, Long Tan occurred very early in your yes tour of Vietnam, day right. seventy. I don't, I don't, I don't want to <laughs> trivialise it, but I mean, you had another ten odd months. That's in, right, country. Well,
2: we were, we were extremely concerned that, that this was going to be the trend, that we were going to have battles like this. Um, nothing, nothing could have assured us uh, otherwise. Um, it wasn't until uh, many, many months later that we started capturing papers and diaries and, and getting intelligence of, of what damage we really had done them. Um, and uh, we're talking about um, basically taking a regiment off the order of battle um, That the impact on the enemy was essentially not that we knew it at the time. um, The impact was we can't we can't handle the Australians. Leave them alone. Don't don't contact the Australians. Eventually, we we intercepted a letter from the commanders to the troops in the field saying, "If you come into contact with Australian soldiers, stop. Don't persist." Because that's not your job. You are not here to fight the Australians. You are here to convert the uh, civilians. So stop contacting the Australians. And indeed, the history then shows us that um, after Long Tan, the NVA did not again approach the Australians for battle in Fuktui province. The only time that we subsequently, to Long Tan, contacted the enemy, NVA forces, was when we were operating outside the province, a la Coral Balmoral, when we were operating right at the perimeter, at the edge of the of the province, a la Gary's fight. Nui yeah. Um, or when the enemy came in for a different purpose uh, and we got in the way, that is like Tet, where they occupied by rear. And so we fought them in Bahriya. They weren't expecting us, or Bin Bar. Um Otherwise, the enemy simply did not challenge the Australian presence again. And that's the significance, the, the strategic significance of the battle, which is uh, very few people, including the official historians, don't talk about. They, they don't raise the subject, well, what would have happened if Long Tan hadn't have happened?
0: Well, let's raise that subject now. What's your? Because I, I do want to talk about the legacy of the battle. Well, from a practical point of view, if it's, it's it's a multi-barreled question about it, the legacy of the battle. But let's start with, from a practical military and strategic point of view. Let's start
2: with an analysis of the battle. Was it an ambush or was it not? If it was an ambush, they used two thousand people to try to trap what they hoped would probably be at the maximum eight hundred within uh, artillery range of the of the base. Uh, does that sound reasonable to you? Um, my take is no. And in practical purposes, uh, even they, they wouldn't have expected to pull a battalion out of the base and ambush them. The best they could do is a company. So 2,000 people assembled to attack a company, even if they even if they killed every one of the company. In the process, they would have done more than two, two, 200, two hundred hundreds worth of damage to them. An ambush, no matter how you look at it, isn't viable. So what, what other reason could there be that 2,000 people were gathered there? The only possible other reason for them to be there was to do over the base. That opens two questions. If they'd had to go at the base and not, uh, uh, you know, not succeeded, uh, then they would have had egg on their faces. So they would have done a lot of homework before doing that. They would have had look at numbers and, and so on. We know that they'd done a good recce. Of the base beforehand, um, and so that they wouldn't have em- embarked on a on a base attack unless they had a good chance of winning. So then you've got to think: well, if if, if Long term didn't happen, then the, the numbers would have come through, and they would have attacked the base. In August '66, could the base have withstood an, uh, an attack by at least two thousand? And we that, that's a good estimate of who was at the battle, not counting anyone else that was anywhere else. So let's say a minimum of 2,000 people. 2,000 people coming up against, uh, for instance, the artillery perimeter, attack of um, one twenty to 1, 10 to 1, that's well within the, the um, VC, NVA odds. And so the soft underbelly, the artillery, they would have gone into task force headquarters, which was, after all, the only, the, that was the political aim. If they could destroy task force headquarters, then they've, they've achieved their aim. They don't have to attack the battalions. Um, so now look at the possibility of, um, OK, now they've no long tan. They've taken – they've attacked the base and they've, they've killed off the, the brigadier. And they've, they've just gone bush. Um, that political victory, is that worth it? Certainly. The the NVA was always prepared to expend soldiers for a political victory, so now you've got uh, the whole um, ANZAC commitment to the war wiped out after seventy days in country, or in in the case of five battalion, a hundred days. What what ramifications are there? Well, not only would governments have fallen in Australia and New Zealand. But we would have been out of there with our tails between our legs. We would have lost, let's say, twelve or 1,500 people. Um, the ANZAC commitment to the war would have gone finished. The South Vietnamese would have looked at the Americans and said, listen, you couldn't even protect your round-eyed cousins. What, what good are you doing here? Yeah? We, 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 we've lost hope. We, you can't even defend one province... <laughs> You, you, and when we want you to defend 44 provinces, this, this is hopeless. So it, it's quite arguable; a, a case can be made that it changed the whole ANZAC commitment to the war, and possibly even the war itself. Insofar as the political alliances go, the Americans would have would have never trusted us again. All of Southeast Asia would have laughed at us. You know, big tough burly Australians coming in and getting their asses kicked. You know after a couple of months, um, the whole face of Southeast Asia, it could be argued, hinged on the, the, the success of the ANZAC um, commitment, as well as our, our face in Southeast Asia. Now, how we are accepted or were accepted in Southeast Asia, we would have lost all credibility. The whole, the whole relationship, arguably could have been changed because of the result of the battle.
0: What about the legacy of where Long Tan now sits in the Anzac story? Because I touched on this briefly earlier in the interview that Long Tan is up there with the Gallipoli landings, Kokoda, Passchendaele, you know, pick any major Australian battle that Long Tan sits up alongside it. How does that sit with you as... How do you feel I'm, that you are now part of that
2: Anzac <laughs> legacy? I'm probably the wrong person to a- ask this because uh, um, whatever I say will be blowing my own bugle. Long Tan was only a company action. When you when you when you boil it all down, um, very well supported, but it was only a company action. Um, so you can't compare it to Gallipoli or Passchendaele or Lone Pine or, or you know, even Kokoda. There are battles within those battles that you could compare it to, but. Longtown is, is unique in, in the annals of Australian warfare and arguably even British warfare, Anglo-Saxon warfare, American warfare, where 108 people went out and, and uh, achieved something um, so extraordinary in, in infantry tactics, you know, in, in, in company uh, environment. And I would put it to you that it's 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 arguably the the the, the most magnificent company action um, ever in in, well, in recorded history. I mean, um, the the uh, other contenders, if you like, all have mitigating circumstances. People compare it to, um, for instance, Rourke's Drift, where just over a company defended against thousands of Zulus. But at Rourke's Drift, one side had Martini-Henry rifles. Single shot, sure, but a a whole lot more dangerous than than a a native spear. Um, So uh, a bunch of natives with spears were held off by a bunch of British with rifles. Um, Is that a fair comparison? No. Um, Long Tan, we were outgunned. We were outmanned, obviously, but we were outgunned. The AK-47 had a 30-round magazine that could be fired on automatic. That was their standard rifle. Our standard rifle was an SLR, half again as heavy. Um, 20-round magazines couldn't be fired on automatic, and and basically the two projectiles had the same statistics and specifications. Their machine guns was far better than ours. The M60 was there for helicopter mounting or or base defences, not for not for carrying in the bush, we had linked rounds, 100-round uh, 100, 100 link belts We had to drag through the dirt. So they got see- uh, um, the, the seizing, the me- mechanism seized up a lot. Their RPD machine guns had round magazines and all of them that we picked up the next morning were working and not, not even half of the machine guns that we had, the M60s, were working the next morning. The Armalite's um, a good weapon, but um, flaky. Uh, not as good as the AK-47, in my opinion. Certainly not the hitting power. It, it had a much smaller round. The 7.62 round thumps you, and it pushes you down. Um, the, the the point... Was it 5.56? Five, 5.56. Five, 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 six. Um, uh, that's a high-velocity bullet. It'll stop you if it hits something hard. If it hit. Its bones, or if it hits webbing, but if it hits flesh, it'll go straight through. And yes, hydrostatic hydrostatic shock will will kill you. If the bullet happens to hit you at a slight angle, and and they, they talk about the tumbling bullet and so on, that's not that's not true. It was an it was an unstable round. Um, if if it uh, hit a soft bit, it would go through. Um, so. It's it's arguable that they were better round, better better weaponed, better armed than we were. And they certainly had the the numbers. Um, To get that sort of equivalence in another battle, you'd have to look far and wide. And and yes, the results will will justify at least the the theory that I'm putting forward that that it's it's unmatched. There is no comparison. Uh, to answer your de- direct question, um, uh, how do I feel about that? Well, I feel obviously immensely proud of having been part of that. But I'm protected by the fact that it's not common knowledge. Um, people don't touch me in the street and they say, you're at Long Tan. And Long Tan was a magnificent battle. You know. For the first uh, 30 years, well, 66, say, 20 years, for the first 20 years, nobody talked about it. And then a documentary and a couple of books came out, and start people started to realize that something, something significant happened. But it's it's only now gaining traction that in fact, in fact that this was a magnificent feat of arms, which is why I said to you I'm not the one to be talking about it. <laughs> um, and it was conducted by fifty percent national servicemen who had been thirteen months in the army, and this was their first contact, and they'd been trained in counter-revolutionary warfare, not in conventional warfare. So everything about the battle speaks about potential failure, and yet it wasn't.
0: A wonderful achievement, as you said, and I... I really appreciate you taking the time the the long time that you've given us to sit down and talk about it it's just it's remarkable for me personally as a historian it's remarkable to Mm. be able to share these stories and i just you know i'm so appreciative and i'm sure our listeners are as well so dave thank you so much for taking the time
2: thank you very much for giving me the time